Good morning. Thank you for being here. I want to ask a, actually two favors of you today. Number one, please come back to our one o'clock service. We would love to have you be here. We will get in, get out, and so I want to encourage you to come back. The second favor you can do me, please do not eat dessert. Let me tell you why. Because if you eat dessert, you're probably going to go to sleep. And so I need you awake. Wait until 2 o'clock or afterward to have your dessert today, or maybe for dinner tonight. But please come back. We're going to be talking tonight, or rather this afternoon, about a subject that all of us have to deal with. It has to do with worry. So I'm going to give you five reasons why we shouldn't worry. So I hope you'll come back. In a lesson today, we're going to be talking about the message that everyone needs to hear. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth many years ago, he said, the message of the cross is foolishness to some. But to those of us who believe, it is the power of God. A message does not have to be long to pack a lot of punch. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the Apostle Paul said, The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So what I want to do today is just talk about this message. A message that everyone deserves to hear. And really that message has to do with the death, burial, resurrection, and ultimate ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that I want to talk about in our study today has to do with the danger of living in sin. Now there are some things that, there are some activities that we could engage in that without question carry danger. Those who fought in World War II who were on the battlefield. I knew a fellow that was at Iwo Jima, and he came through that. But imagine if you can waking up every day to the sound of gunfire and the imminent danger that you would face in that circumstance. Life is often filled with dangers. Many of us, we read just this past week about that airliner that had pulled out of Hawaii, they got up to about 2,200 feet, and then trouble arose. The nose of that plane turned south, and they were headed for water. My understanding is they were within about five seconds of crashing into the ocean. Let me tell you what, that's danger. Well, what about the danger of living in sin? It might be the case that we've become so accustomed to hearing about sin that it might be that it's lost its punch. But to understand that first and foremost, it's a problem. It is a universal problem. And not just a universal problem, but I would submit to you it is an undeniable problem. Do you remember the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Romans chapter 6, 
or rather Romans chapter 3. Paul would say, there is none righteous, no, not one. In verse 23, he said, all have sinned. No exclusions, no exceptions. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So it's a problem. Solomon recognized that centuries ago, back in 1 Kings chapter 8, at the dedication of the temple. So we talk about this age-old problem, and really it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? That's when sin was introduced to the human family. As a result of that, we have had a proliferation of problems. And it all goes back to one place, the Garden of Eden, and one couple, Adam and Eve. So we think about the problem of sin. But then there's a second thought, has to do with the power of sin. The Lord Jesus understood that one of the real debilitating problems of sin is that it has an allurement, that it has the ability to bring us into captivity or slavery, so to speak. Remember, for example, in John chapter 8, Jesus would talk about those who commit sin have become the bondservants of sin. There's the idea. In Romans 6, Paul would say, being set free from sin, we become the servants, the slaves of righteousness. So the flip side of that would be, if we're in sin, we have become a slave to that way of life. So the slavery, the captivity, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, at verse 26, Paul writes about those who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Boy, there's a lot of pull when it comes to sin, isn't there? As a matter of fact, the Lord Jesus was tempted by the devil. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4. The devil did everything within his power to tempt or allure the Lord into sin. But Jesus victoriously said no each and every time. Well, the power of sin. When you hear about people today who have a drug addiction, whether it be some type of chemical substance or alcohol, that is a form of slavery. Now, they might envision themselves as being free, free to do what they want. But let me tell you what, when you get up and every single morning the first thought before your feet hit the floor has to do with the drink of alcohol, that's slavery. That's a form of bondage. But then there is a third thought. And that has to do with the, what I would call the price of sin. There's a price tag attached to just about everything in life, isn't there? If you want to have a college degree, well, the price of that is you've got to go to a university or college. And you've got to spend about four or five years reading, studying, and making your way through coursework so that you can get that degree. Well, what's the price of sin? Paul said it well in Romans 6 at verse 23. Paul would write, the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from Almighty God. And here's the real danger. 
Now we talk about sin having the ability to bind, but it also blinds, doesn't it? Didn't Paul write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the eyes, the minds of them which believe not? Sadly, there are people in our world today, they're so caught up in a life of sin. They don't understand the danger of living in that lifestyle and the penalty that's associated with it. The prophet Ezekiel many years ago said, the soul that sins, that is, the person who sins, he said, they shall surely die. Frightening thought, talking about eternal separation from God. Now, there is a flip side to what we're talking about. It's like a coin. On the one side of the coin, you have the danger of living in sin. The other side of the coin, however, deals with deliverance from living in sin. So there are a couple of thoughts here. Number one, let's just talk about the principles of salvation. Why is it that we are so blessed? And we talk about a message that everyone needs to hear. Well, to understand first and foremost that God has placed tremendous value on us individually, not just collectively, but individually. God recognizes the intrinsic worth of the human soul, the eternal soul. Matter of fact, God's the one that has placed within us an eternal spirit. That spirit or soul will live forever. And so what about the principles that have to do with salvation? Well, I think first and foremost, the goodness of God. To understand something about the goodness of God, and not just the goodness of God, but the grace of God. Do you remember the Apostle Paul would write in Titus chapter 2? The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to every man. Why is it that we can enjoy the benefits and the blessings of salvation because of God's grace? Because God in His goodness devised a plan so that we might be set free from sin and enjoy the benefits and the blessings of eternal life. Now, listen to what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul said, and he's talking about each and every one of us, God desires all men, A-L-L, that's you, all men to be saved. And the word men here is male and female. God desires all men, whether male or female, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. What the Lord wants from each of us is the very best. And He has given us His very best. So we talk about the goodness of God and the grace of God. Go back and look at Romans chapter 5. You remember when Paul said, When we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, Paul would write, But God commends His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, listen to him, Christ died for us. You could insert your name there. Christ died for you. He died for your children, your siblings, your parents, grandparents. The Lord went to Calvary for each and every one. 
Listen to the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 9. He said, But now we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for every man. That says something about God's goodness and grace, doesn't it? So, what about the prerequisites? To salvation. Now, here's what I want you to think about for a minute. I'd encourage you to get a copy of the lesson or write this down. There are some prerequisites as you talk to your friends and neighbors and family members. When you're at work, at school, and people begin to talk to you about salvation, or maybe they ask questions, there are some basic fundamental facts that all of us ought to commit to memory. It might be that you'll want to take your Bible out, maybe in the back of your Bible, just write it down. Write these thoughts down so that if somebody asks you, you can say, okay, here's what Scripture says. So, number one, here's what every person needs to become a child of God. First and foremost, we have to have a Bible, don't we? The Bible is our standard of authority. And so everything that we're talking about has to be rooted in Scripture. Why? Because that's God's standard. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that there are to be no divisions among us, but rather that we are to all, listen to him, speak the same thing. All that means is the record says the same thing to you as it does to me. And the message that you obey is to be the same message that I obey. So we got to begin with a Bible. Do you remember what the, what the Scripture says about the power of God's Word? Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We will never be able to lead anybody to Christ if we don't open the Scriptures. Now Paul raised the question many years ago, what does the Scripture say? That ought to be what we ask. What does the Bible say? So number one, we have to have a Bible. And the Hebrew writer said that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So let God have His say in the matter. Number two, first we have, to, we have to have a Bible. Number two, we have to have belief. Belief is mandatory in the grand scheme of things, isn't it? So how then does faith come about? Remember what I said a minute ago? You have to have a Bible. Well, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So when I open this book and begin to read and study the statements that are made, statement after statement after statement, I come to understand something about the Lord and His great love for me, His desire that none should perish but that all should come to repentance. I come to understand that Jesus is the divine Son of the living God. And that he is, the focal, he is to be the focal point of life, isn't he? Didn't Jesus say, I'm the way, the truth, the life? No man comes unto the Father but by me. Was it not in the long ago the apostles who said, neither is there salvation in any other? There is no other name, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So we've got to develop faith in the Lord. Now, faith in the Lord 
will bring about a desire to obey the gospel. That is, to live an obedient life. So we talk about the importance of the Bible, God's holy word. Then secondly, the need for belief. Jesus would say, except you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. The Hebrew writer said, without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So I've got rock-solid faith. And because of that faith, I am moved to change my way of living. It's called repentance, isn't it? I'm willing to repent of sin. Now on Pentecost Day, this takes us back to when the church began. You recall on Pentecost Day, the focal point of the apostles preaching and teaching was Jesus, wasn't it? Did they know who Jesus was? Yes. He talked about the miracles and wonders and signs which the Lord had done in their presence. And by the way, he pointed out that they were the ones that had crucified and slain him. And so when they heard that great message, the Bible says that Peter, in the presentation of divine truth, said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God's made both Lord and Christ. Luke said in his commentary on the events that unfolded that day, they were cut, pricked to the heart. They were convicted of sin. So they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he had this to say, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. So now we have the importance of baptism. Well, what's so important, essential about baptism? Well, to understand that Peter linked both repentance and baptism to salvation or to the forgiveness of sins. So are you telling me then that there's something magical about the water? I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that baptism is any more important than belief. They are all equally important. Baptism is just as important as belief. Belief is just as important as repentance. Repentance is just as imperative as confession. It takes the summation of God's Word to bring about divine truth, doesn't it? So what Peter is saying on Pentecost Day is you need to be baptized into Christ, all right? Why do we need to be baptized into Christ? So that we can contact the blood of Christ. The only way that you, well, really I might say the only way that any of us can be saved is by contacting the blood of Jesus. Well, how important is the blood of Jesus? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 26, a moment ago we particularly the Lord's Supper, and Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant now listen to him, which is shed for the many for the remission of sins. Now you could take Matthew chapter 26, verse 28 and put it to the side of Acts 2.38 and there is a parallel there. The Lord Jesus shed His blood, established His covenant. His blood is what brings about the remission of sins. 
All right? Peter said we repent, we're baptized, and then we enjoy the remission, the forgiveness of sins. Is there a logical order there? Yes. Jesus said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. So when we are buried with Christ in baptism, and baptism is a burial, it's not sprinkling, not pouring. Baptism has a specific purpose. It is for the remission of sins. Now there are people in the, in the denominational world. They will tell you that you're saved first, you believe, then you're saved, and then you're baptized. All right, here's a question. If that's the case, that means you're burying a live person. Do you bury living people or dead people? Well, how do I know you need to be baptized before you become a child of God and enjoy forgiveness? Because Paul said in Romans chapter 6, listen to this very carefully. Know you not that all we who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were therefore buried with Him in baptism unto death. If you weren't baptized... For the remission of your sins, your baptism is not biblical. Do you understand that? We need to understand that. We're not saved and then baptized. No, we're baptized to be saved. Now listen, that's what the Bible teaches. And I know what denominations teach. And denominations do not teach what the Bible has to say about how to become a Christian. Now, I don't say that ugly. It's just a fact. Now, what are we talking? We're talking about the Bible. Listen, the Bible only makes Christians. Christians. Does not make a denomination. The Bible does not make a member of a denomination. It takes a creed book to do that. It takes a manual of faith to do that. You will never make a New Testament Christian using a creed book. But you can make a New Testament Christian using this book, the Bible. And listen, when you're baptized into Christ, you contact the blood of Christ. Do you mean to tell me that I need to contact the blood to be saved? That's exactly right. The sufficiency of Jesus. You remember in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the Hebrew writer said that Jesus by Himself purged us from sin by Himself. He's the one that did that. Purged us from our sins. Paul said, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. John said unto Him who loved us and washed us from our sins. Many, many years ago, Zechariah, foreseeing the day when Christ would shed His blood, said, in that day, a fountain will be open for sin and uncleanness. What, were, what was that fountain all about? About the blood of Christ? The shedding of His blood? Now listen. When you do that, God automatically puts you in His body. You don't have to join the church. You don't have to put your name before a group of people so that they can decide whether or not you are a fit candidate to become a member of the church. No, when you obey the gospel... 
The Bible says God adds you to the church. What I'm trying to do is tell you there are some important steps to become a Christian. And again, here's what the world says, but here's what the Word says. I want to follow the Bible. Why? Because the Bible's what's going to judge me one day. You better make sure that your life is in harmony with this book. So when we sit down and talk to people at work or maybe in our home or wherever, and they just ask us the question, okay, how do I become a Christian? What are the steps involved? Well, first and foremost, you have to have a Bible. Why? Because a Bible produces faith or belief. And then to understand that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, confess His name, and are baptized, we contact His blood, which washes away our sins. Isn't that what Saul of Tarsus did in the long ago when Ananias came to him and said, Why are you tearing? Why are you waiting? Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's how you call on His name. And then God puts us in the body. And then the expectation is for us to engage in righteous behavior. But add to that the blessings that we enjoy in Christ. Every spiritual blessing that we talk about is in Christ Jesus. They're all in Christ. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 1.3. So what does that mean? It means that in Christ there's forgiveness. In Christ there is peace. In Christ there is the privilege of prayer. In Christ there is the promise of heaven. And so on and so on. All these great blessings. So I want to ask you today, have you obeyed the gospel? Have you done what the Bible says to do to become a child of God? To understand that there is danger in living in sin, but there is deliverance that has been made possible through the death of Jesus on Calvary's cross. God wants you to be saved. If we are, if we are lost, it will be because we choose to live in a lost condition. And I assure you, the Lord does not want that. So what do you need to do? Well, just what we said. Obey the gospel. Do what they did on Pentecost Day. Believe in the Lord. Be baptized into Christ. Enjoy the blessings of His blood and all those other great spiritual blessings that Paul talks about. And then behave yourself as a child of God. In other words, live a sober, righteous, godly life in Christ as Paul talks about in Titus chapter 2. Can you do that? Yes. Well, if you do that, what then can you expect? Here it is. You can expect the crown of life to Stephanos. We all want to go to heaven. And the beauty of living the Christian life is one day we can be in the presence of God and with the people of God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, please think about where you are. Why not come to Christ? Why not make the good confession today and be baptized into Christ, become a member of the body of Christ, and then live for God faithfully? until death. If you're here, and maybe your life's not what it ought to be, and you want the prayers of the church to help you get your life back in order, listen, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you as we stand and sing.